0: When is that Amazon order coming? When is that, uh, you know, Gap order coming? That was the early um, anchor.
1: All that and more in this episode of the Commerce Tomorrow podcast.
2: Welcome to a new episode of the Commerce Tomorrow podcast. My name is Dirk Koehring, and I'm here today again with my co-host Kelly. Hello. Hi, Kelly. And uh, it's exciting. We're doing another... On-site episode. Uh, it's good to see uh, people in person, and uh, I'm actually excited about uh, welcome uh, our special guest uh, for today, Maya Benson. Welcome, Maya.
0: Hello, Dirk. Hi, Kelly. Great to be here.
2: Thanks for coming. So, um, well, w- let's start probably with an introduction, right? So, uh, you're managing director of Forum VC, um, but you have held uh, multiple positions and roles uh, across the e-commerce industry uh, in the last decade. So yeah, we're curious to learn more about that. And I think we'll also discuss OMS in depth uh, as a special topic today. Fantastic. Um, So let's get started. Tell us a little bit more about yourself.
0: Yeah, so I kind of stumbled backwards into this uh, logistics and e-commerce space back in 2013 when Pitney Bowes was really looking to pivot from a hardware mailing company to a software shipping and mailing company. And so through that journey, we looked at kind of growth avenues uh, along not only the traditional and legacy small business customer base, so helping them do their shipping via normal barcoded shipping labels like we know today, versus what they had been doing to a great extent uh, of just printing postage and sticking it on boxes. So there was that known market and space to solve and bring the modern uh, barcoded labels to to that um, with tracking visibility at all. And then we also looked at how else do we grow than capitalize on the growing thing that was e-commerce. So I remember being at IRCE in 2013 and seeing Shopify and Wix and some of the early uh, e-com platforms and talking to their salespeople and seeing, God, this looks like it's so easy to use for e-commerce and selling, but how do you ship something? And they were like... Yeah, I mean, there's some other tools to do that, or you can just go down to the local post office. So that was really the first entree backwards into, into the e-commerce world. At Pitney, we decided at that point in time, after some pretty deep exploration, to kind of focus on the core base, and so we built a multi-carrier um, shipping platform for that core office um, uh as I'm rolling out that new adventure, I was lucky. I got a call from a small Canadian company uh, looking uh, for someone to help this in this help them in this shipping space. And how small were they at the time? At that time, they were, gosh, probably about 500 employees. They okay. were about uh, nine months post being public. Um, so so really early days. I mean, it was one of those conversations where it's like, hi, I'm Harley from Shopify, <laughs> not Spotify, <laughs> right? And, and so, so they had just launched a small shipping product about 20 days before calling me, and they saw that it didn't take off like payments did, right? So when they, when they saw ta- payments just take off kind of out of the gate when it was uh, launched, the same thing didn't have for, happen for shipping, and my first question was, well, do you understand it's a workflow mm-hmm. <laughs> choice, not a transactional payments cost choice? And he was like, no, can you just fly up here next Tuesday? You, you gotta help us. <laughs> and so the, the opportunity was really like, we're pretty good at technical R&D, but we don't, you know, kind of newer to strategy pricing, go to market, taking third-party tech and in it in our platforms. And so took the leap, took a real risk. I was the second US employee, Shopify was just literally set setting up their U.S. legal entity to just give you the context mm-hmm. and, and join. And so uh, really had the uh, great pleasure of building kind of sh- the self-embedded Shopify shipping from zero to Bs over about five years. Uh, built and led all the Shopify fulfillment network uh, strategy um, and then launch. And then along the way also was one of the first people to incubate and launch the shop app. So that's how I got us, you know, got into <laughs> and fell backwards into this e-commerce and, and logistics world, which is just so amazing. Uh,
2: how much had you been involved also then in the Flexport acquisition? I think that also f- fell into that timeline still when you had been there, right?
0: So uh, the actual acquisition uh, happened four months after I left. Okay. Okay, so I left just before that, but... Um, had known Harish and met Harish when uh, when Deliver was three slides in a dream, so had been a long time kind of friend of of um, Deliver, and you know, look, the thesis, the core core anchors of why Shopify had to be in the fulfillment uh, world were really rooted in a couple deep pillars. Like one, we saw merchant death rates because the workflow once you're getting more than fifty orders a day, um, they would die. And when we started looking and building the strategy, it was 2017, and the substitutes, the options that they had to go out and find fulfillment partners, were FBA and Shipwire out of San Diego. There just wasn't, it was the early, early infancy of the rest of the FBA you know, competitors, the shipobs, the Shipmunks, the Shipheroes, et cetera. Yeah. So there just weren't options. So we had a death rate risk. The other thing that we knew Uh, was um, there was 20 to 60% more conversion on the line. So we literally had ghost GMV sitting as opportunity for our merchants. So really providing a trusted delivery promise was also a huge uh, upside. And then lastly, as we were birthing shop, Shop as a marketplace really gave us a new business model to exploit, right? Could you
1: explain what Shop pay Shop is? The yes, app?
0: Thank, mm-hmm. thank you, Kelly. Slow me down.
1: I keep wanting to say Shop Pay, but it's not Shop Pay. No, no, no it's
0: the Shop it's App. It's the Shop App, yes. But you're right, they're actually very deeply intertwined. Um, so the Shop App is a great place, you know, its anchor value proposition for consumers was really in, hey, Dirk, track any of your e-comm orders, no matter where you shop, in one place. Like when is that Amazon order coming? When is that uh, you know, Gap order coming? That was the early um, anchor. And then what it became and grew into uh, was discovery. So hey, Maya, we noticed that you're shopping at Gap and you're buying these red shirts. Maybe you want to look at other red shirts from other merchants within our network. So it kind of has evolved into really a discovery and marketplace, because now it's got to checkout where you and I can go shopping. On the shop app and it's smart it knows what we've purchased before so hopefully that's a a little bit of help and
1: and why why would a brand sign up to lose their i guess lose their window right because now if you just have your products you're basically just a drop shipper so what's the incentive for the brands on shopify to do that?
0: so it's a really meaningful question kelly because you know throughout my five plus years at shopify we had this beautiful business model of being infrastructure and really the hidden platform to help commerce commerce merchants grow. And we had always kind of debated and explored, should we also be the destination? Mm -hmm. Okay, so just know that was an evolution for us over five years. And I think that how we got more confidence in through our learnings journey to be that destination was to kind of take the classic Shopify DNA, which was merchant, it's still your customer. So let us help drive demand. It's one of the hardest jobs you have. Let us help you drive demand, but you own the data and you own the relationship with the consumer. So I think that approach has proven to drive kind of the trust needed with the merchants to say, great, this is just another demand channel for me, like an eBay, like an Amazon. Um, uh, and so I think that's that's part of the, the you know success anchor of, of why merchants trust the app. But tying it back to kind of the justification for Shopify Fulfillment Network, now we had the ability in the model to cross sell upsell at checkout. And when you can do that, you can drive down the unit economics. And so those were kind of the three anchors of why Shopify Fulfillment Network. And we had gone through 14 months of kind of build by partner to accelerate our position. And I was excited to see um, the acquisition of Deliver, right? So like we needed to get a faster build on the WMS to wiggle and fit into the fulfillment management system, the FMS, that we bought with Six River, right? Because we wanted to be that turnkey fulfillment operating system for our 3PL partners. So I, I was just you know, thrilled to see that acquisition and then unfortunately, not long-lived, um, it, it, it went on into Dave Clark's hands.
1: And maybe explain just for our listeners what happened.
0: Yeah. You know, I think when things like this don't work, there's not one simple answer. Mm-hmm. But I think um, I think at the end of the day, we, uh, Shopify is, you know, a DNA uh, electrons business, right? Like d- code, we live in the code world, it's disposable, we can test and learn and it's code. And as you guys know, when you're building for the physical environment, it's people in process, right? And so that can just drive another dimension. And you know, it took Amazon seven years to build a functioning WMS, so I don't know that we were gonna do it any faster. So it just takes time to build. And so I think that's kind of one component. And then the other component, which also is right and true, is this thing called Gen AI was born, right? And so in the world of resourcing, Toby's as resource-constrained as any CEO, like there are finite resources, um, I think there was a We've got all of this to build over here at the same time. Gen AI is coming in and presenting unbelievable new opportunities for new. Experiences.
2: Yeah, and probably it might have gone different if the macro environment would have not changed in that direction, and if you would have more time and different financial perspective on these developments, right? So then you might consider that differently. But
0: I think that's right. I also will say, you know, the CFO changed, right? So we always knew that the fulfillment margins would change the overall Shopify margin mix. Yeah and so i think that's also a component
2: so to close that chapter we have not fully sh- fully um, finished yet your career path yes. to date right so we're still yes. on the shopify yes. uh, journey um okay. so tell us a little bit more about what you're doing now
0: yes so i left shopify in 21 and took the leap myself and became a founder i co-founded a luxury fashion nft commerce company we had the opportunity as the headwinds in crypto land came in in 22 to roll that into another company. And as I thought about, my plan was to go back into operating building land, a period, hard stop, was having some fantastic conversations, literally it, at the point of negotiating a non-compete with an offer. Uh, along the journey had been personally investing, advising, uh, uh, as well as advising different venture fir- uh, firms Uh, One of which was Forum, and out of the blue, they just kind of said, hey, do you want to try this VC thing? And as I thought about it, every night I went to bed, and my heart just said, more founders, bigger wallet, right? So as a DNA-level builder, that was kind of the litmus for this career shift. So it's just been an unbelievable choice and time to be in VC for the past year, you know, given two major things, interest rates going up and to the right and really changing how much capital is being deployed and to whom. We've been a little bit luckier on the early stage side, so we're pre-seed and seed, B2B SaaS. Um, so a little bit more insulated there, but our companies grow up and need to go get more capital, and that's been really, really challenging. And then the other thing, like I mentioned earlier, was just, um, hello, you know, Gen It's <laughs> Like, come in as a new platform, and, and that's, you know, I was telling Kelly over drinks the other night, you know, that's, that's every call every day for me at this point. I'm just living kind of 10 years out into the future about how things, including commerce and logistics, are gonna look.
1: So uh, let's, uh, let's pivot a little bit to order management. So say, say I'm a retailer, yep. and I do a billion a year online yep. in GMV. What does order management look like to me? What software do I need? What capabilities do I need? What should I build versus buy, right? H- how do you define that?
0: Yeah, so I think a lot of it looks like you're doing a billion dollars of GMV, like where? Right. So how many channels do you have? So I think we gotta dig into complexity. So how many channels do you have? What percentage of your orders are going cross-border, which adds complexity? Um, And then on the fulfillment side, how many fulfillment warehouses, fulfillment centers, fulfillment partners do you have to kind of bring that, bring those orders into the consumer's uh, front door? So I think the altitude Of complexity in which you're driving that billion dollars you know through is going to drive a lot about uh, your evaluation criteria for what type of order management system if you're living in the most extreme complex situation I've got orders coming in from multiple commerce channels and I've got orders going out of multiple fulfillment centers and then let's just put that on a global checkerboard then you're talking about order management systems that have tremendous flexibility and routing logic to manage what goes where, when, how, for let's meet the time promise for the least amount of cost. And then when you're dealing with that hairball of complexity, what we also tend to see is what I've traditionally called order orchestration and Kelly's brand into order operations world. So now you need new logic layers that can come right on top of the OMS that connect deeper into the TMSs and the WMSs that can now add even more dimensionality to what order gets fulfilled from where for the cheapest cost on
1: time. Let's
2: say you also have a significant brick and mortar retail business aside to that and you have a significant digital business. I don't know. We, We don't need to go to the extremes of the lululemons and nikes we can even think one layer below but let's say that it's a company that does a billion in total gmv yeah. three four hundred million online six hundred million offline yeah. would you actually recommend two oms yeah. one for the all of the in-store replenishment and services and one for the other or how would you set that
0: yeah um so I listened acutely to Kelly's question, which he did say e-commerce, <laughs> so that's why I stayed in the billion dollar e-com lane only, but I, uh, yeah, you add you add brick and mortar point of sale and it just becomes that much more challenging. So I think there's a now answer and then there's a Maya lives 10 years <laughs> from now <laughs> answer, right? Yeah, because you also have
2: ship from store, right? So it's not separated bingo. anymore, so.
0: Bingo, yeah. 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 So, you know, in an ideal world, guys, you have an order management system that sees all the orders. <laughs> That's, it's like hard, it's difficult, but a single solve I think is is the ideal solution. And then you put really smart vector databases behind that and really smart logic on top of it, we can call order operations. And then you can give consumers like you and I whatever choice of experience that we want, right? When COVID hit, my life changed when Target went really fast and said, Maya, buy whatever you want, wherever you want, and we'll give it to you where and whenever you want. Like they were such a leader. But they
2: self-build it, right? If I, on the OMS side. Do you know what? Dek- I don't
0: know. You might know, Dirk. I don't know what yeah, this stack is. They largely built it, yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, I think, I just think with the power of um, the evolution of vector databases, LLMs that are getting trained, I think we're living in a world where all of the order data from whatever system can go into a single OMS that can be highly performant in Drivex.
2: Yeah, definitely. So looking into the future, I think that's uh, that's definitely the path. Yeah. If we look into the status quo setup, yes. many of the retailers, I think it's still that's kind right. of messy. They're stovepiped,
0: mm. yes. And they were born, you know, many were born online and then went e And so they've got a ton of investment in the way the setup worked for to, to run their brick and mortar business. And you know, I think the smarter uh, retailers that I know we all deal with every day um, don't just look at ecom as a channel; they look at it as what's the, the what's the consumer experience, and so much of it's going to be digital periods, and, and kind of work backwards from there. But you're right; that's the current state of the world today. And again, Maya's lens is mostly five to ten years <laughs> out, just yep. given my daily my <laughs> daily phone call. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes
1: sense. So how have order management systems changed? I mean, besides the introduction of yeah. multiple channels, but I mean, how, like fundamentally, have they changed and how?
0: Yeah, so I'll give you the Maya kind of born online, born uh, native e-comm point of view. So the first order management systems that kind of uh, cross my wire were kind of single channel, e- your D2C site running the order management better, than candidly, the monolith platforms could do that. So they were just a better version of what a lot of the monoliths have now caught up to. So that was kind of version one. And then, oh my gosh, they some of these born digital natives started opening up brick and mortar stores, right? And so now they were like, okay, I've got orders coming in from my e-com store that's been working forever. Well, now maybe I need a third party to wire into Square or whomever else I'm using on the point of sale side. So that bridge order management system is was kind of uh, the second evolution. And then, you know, Commiserately, some of the folks started selling on two channels d to c and Amazon, D2C and uh, um, eBay. And so, again, that bridge OMS sitting between the one or two and then growing set of channels to route, to, to take the orders, to apply a basic set of logic. To then drive routing generally to one warehouse, one fulfillment center. So the complexity on the fulfillment side was, you know, simpler in the early days. Um, has really been, I think, what we've seen from you know Amaya' point of view on the evolution of the order management systems.
1: That's, that's helpful, and. Do you believe that best-in-breed OMS should exist as a separate category? Should it be a component of your platform? Like what's the GMV cutoff where you just take a Shopify or something small with some pieces baked in versus like a full-blown third-party
0: stack? Um, I think that, you know, typically by the time you're, it's, it's, it's a complexity answer. I could give you a GMV-ish lens like, you know, we saw OMS's kind of take flight, you know, 20 million and above is where kind of some of the complexity came in, mostly with, they weren't using Shopify's POS, right? So they'd use a third party POS and they need to bridge the OMS there. But, um, you know, should OMS exist as a standalone category, Um, I think it will for a while just because we've got so much legacy stuff and new stuff that have to be knit together. And, like, even the monolith platforms that do omni-channel pretty well, like Shopify, aren't perfect and can't do all the things. And so even just uh, multi-omni-channel online-only worlds, I think, are going to justify the need for for OMSs.
2: Yeah, and (laughs) I think that category might be even span a little bit broader if you think in the overall logistic management, supply chain management. So I think maybe there can be some consolidation in the future of new modern vendors, right? So I think we always have the trend of best of breed and then yeah. we get very small, though each of these functions might be big. Yeah. But but at least then from the, from the company purpose, over time, they ne- might need to have the goal to grow, right? So similar, like you had it with Shopify, right? So it started with something and then you had pay and app and logistics and so on and more coming. And I think maybe that could also be the future of the OMS category in that rethinking everything that is touching a physical good across the whole journey, not only on the very last part. um,
0: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. So I think, Dirk, to kind of bounce back, how I'm interpreting your point, which I totally agree with is like, Order management can't just be standalone like the feeder system that then di- di- you yeah. know, dishes out the, the cards to the right place. It's also going to be a ton of um, uh, inventory allocation, uh, um, order routing, um, all the higher levels of, of orders of operations for logic to drive all the way down to the execution of, to the consumer store.
2: Yeah, and right. you could even go down to the supply where the products originally are coming from, even on the production level. Think about the Chinese models like t Sheen, and so on, right? So they are not even touching some of the goods, right? So they are just routing it through, but end-to-end from the fabric where it's being produced yeah. to the end consumer with yeah. a lot of different capabilities that they. Need I to love cover. that mental yeah.
0: model, and it you know it just begs you know a passion point. Me and you guys and a bunch of friends are, you know, y- y- that is, I think, the right mental model. But, boy, you know, the the next generation of ERPs have to be built to think mm-hmm. like that, right? Uh, there's just that's just a uh, that's exactly the right mental model. But, um, you know, n- seeing seeing some innovation there, not 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 enough.
2: Mm. I think that's a good shift to your current role, right? So about Forum Ventures, what? type of companies are you looking at? You already mentioned B2B SaaS as a category, but is there probably already the next uh, generation of ERP solutions coming
1: up?
0: Well, um, it's not a, you know, I I can say that there are some some really smart minds kind of early, early thinking about those problems. So I I have hope. Um, I'd like to see more than uh, that I've seen. Um, But yes, we're a B2B SaaS firm, pre-seed and seed. Um, and we focus really generalists, but on all the normal venture lanes, right? So where the wins and the market sizes are big enough for us to, to play. So that's a lot of supply chain tech, a lot of next gen e-com tech, fintech, uh, healthcare tech, um, kind of the normal, the normal venture lanes.
2: So what's the threshold these days? Definitely the wind has changed for, well, the pre-seed seed still is different, right? Uh, on the stages, but... What are the thresholds that companies have to meet to be fundable Great today? Great
0: question. I just was up at Cornell Business School with the ladder kind of outlined on a slide. So what we're seeing today for um, I'll put seed in the middle and then we'll kind of go to the left and the right. So for seed raises, you know, 200 to 250 K in ARR. OK, so that's the main vein of traction. You can raise a seed without that. But what that has to look like is three to five design partners that are basically demand in a box that are building and have committed and you know, building with you. So that's kind of the seed uh, stage thresholds. Pre-seed, products gotta exist. So you used to be able to raise on a, a piece of paper and in, in your name you know, in 21, um, and those days are gone, right? So you have to prove that you can build have to prove that you understand, you know, the problem better than anyone else. So that's how I think about and, and have, you know, a proof point or two of people that want your thing. Um, and then on the A side, we're seeing really anywhere between a million and two million in ARR. So those are the traction. Probably milestones. at
2: growth rate, 200% on yeah, getting there, right? So because if you need s- seven years to get to one million, two million yeah. ARR, it's probably also not
0: yeah, so, so Focus. Dirk, that's kind of like a dagger to my heart these days, <laughs> <laughs> meaning like I think the seven-year paradigm is from all of us in VC land in 2023 is, is um, really fundamentally changing, right? So we had a lot of companies that raised in 21, 20 with very high valuations that are not obviously living in those valuations, uh, valuations anymore, and so they have to grow into them, right? And so that's time. So I think you know, from a calibration standpoint, I think a lot of the venture funds right now are just like, "Hey, get to profitability as quick as you can to find your destiny." But I think we're all very conscious that the exits horizon is has been extended. So sorry, yep. just just building on that yep. seven-year point.
1: For those who raised in 2021, how long of cash burn do they have left? It depends. It's
0: a great question. It depends on. Um, how much they raised it depends on how big the team was and what the burn is so i think mm-hmm. there's some big factors you can see a spectrum of like i raised on a piece of paper and two co-founders and i've kept my burn pretty low and they're in a good good position and they're finding traction uh, well on the flip we've seen people hire you know teams of 12 15 people that are not going to not either gonna, not going to survive or what we're also seeing is basically double pipeline in seed and A's, right? So you've got the standard C and A pipelines, but then you've got seed extensions and A extensions. And so um, it, de- it depends, but I just gave a talk at Cornell. I think the average um, burn right now on the table, if you believe, I think it was Carta, is, is like six months. Hmm. So we're gonna start to see the acceleration of VC-backed companies. Um, you know, shutting their, shutting yeah, their I think shutter. 24,
2: we will see the effect, right? So everybody, so what, what happened 100%. in 22 yep. was causing, or is now, so everybody extended their run rate a little bit, did right. layoffs and so on, but probably they are still not fundable again, especially not on the valuations that they had in 2020, right. 21. Plus maybe the business KPIs don't look the same anymore. So I think 24, at least to all of the VCs that I'm talking to That's and right. business analysts, there's a feeling that there's still a huge amount of companies. Yeah. Where this is a uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, twenty four is twenty four will be the year
2: to uh, yep. see who's making it and who not.
0: That's right. That's right. And then they gotta mark mark down their portfolios and you know, many will be in the position to try and raise capital and yeah.
2: I mean, let's not be too negative here, right? So it's a uh, environment that we all had been in since the last two to three decades, right? So it comes in waves. And on the other end, well, let's see the positive side of it. Talent gets free again. They will start yes. new companies. Yes, 100%. So Yes, we people also will not stay unemployed That's gentlemen. A, we I just it. wanted to say, people <laughs> don't stay point. unemployed. Of yeah. course, it's a, a tragic event. Of course, it's not fun, but yeah. there's always an opportunity out of that for something. Well,
0: and to build on that positive point, like the quality of founders that we're seeing today, it, you know, the waterline has has lifted up because if yep. you're going to start something today, you know you have all the headwinds, the worst mm-hmm. amount of headwinds that you can ever see. And smart LPs know these vintages of founders building now, by definition, are gonna outperform. We saw it in 08, we saw it in 02. Yep. Like, so mm-hmm. I yes, there's always um, opportunity in the dark clouds.
1: Great, well, um, a- anything else you're excited about? Any uh, interesting companies that you're, you've founded that you wanna pitch?
0: Oh, well thank you, uh, <laughs> Kelly. Boy, guys, I have um, just a fantastic portfolio. We've got some, uh, I'll, I'll start south and then go north if it's well, okay.
1: How many checks was it a, a year you write? We like 40, are a so lot.
0: I mean? Yeah, 30 to 40 checks a year. So you ask about. You asked ask me about <laughs> my babies, <laughs> Kelly, and now it's like <laughs> I've got to list all 40. Um, we have 27 people between the US and Canada. Okay um we take uh, what's unique about forum what really really drew me to the model was we are not just a check we are hands-on high touch 65 percent of my day is working with founders um to your question i'm going to start north south and then go north super bullish i'm sure like you guys are on the near-shoring trends so have some fantastic Um, uh, kind of uh, network optimization and last mile optimization. Um, Companies, uh, one's called Courier. It's founded by an ex-Amazon last mile guy out of Mexico. Uh, Another one down there is the Loop or Narvar for returns called Devolut. So I'll start uh, south of the border and then we can go north. Um, Lots of exciting AI-powered trade compliance platforms. So a couple of our Flexport friends have left and started a a great company called Importal. Um, uh, uh, When I ran the RFP to over 53 PLs to think about partners in pricing for the Shopify fulfillment network, one thing that I got back was a hairy ball of mess, even though I gave them the structure to put in the pricing. And so for me, billing has been a long time long, long time, a pain point for 3PL. So we've uh, invested in an Airbnb and X Flexport person to build billing. I could go on, you guys. I have 30, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm, plus mm-hmm. of these. So those are maybe just some fun. So probably fun where fun can fun somebody
2: follow from. you digitally on LinkedIn? I want to say Twitter. I'm still used yeah, to the term I'm not, on X. I'm, <laughs> not,
0: I'm not an ex. I'm not a Twitter. Uh, so, so LinkedIn is great. So LinkedIn Maya, is great. Maya okay. Benson. Um, is is e- an easy place to find me, or I'm just Maya at forumvc.com.
1: Great. Well, thanks for joining us, and to our audience, Maya actually led an all CEO panel I pulled together through the Mock Alliance. So we had the CEOs of uh, Fluent Commerce, we had Pipe Seventeen, we had
0: New Store, New
1: Store Fulfillment Tools. Yep. So um, we had a good list of folks. We KBRW did. was there. Yes. Um, and she led an entire panel. It was a really well done panel. So thank you. you can check we, out. We Maka tried Lines. to bring
0: a few laughs to it. I think we put some stopwatches in there for fun too. So yes, please, please listen.
1: And you know what? If the VC thing doesn't work out, you could always be a really good like news host. Oh, thank you,
0: thank you. I am. I I went to Syracuse, uh, their Newhouse School of Journalism. So that was hypothesis one that I would I would do that professionally. <laughs> it didn't. It didn't. It didn't didn't flow.
1: Perfect. Well, thanks again for joining us, and thanks again to our audience for listening to another episode. Yeah. Thanks, Maya. Thanks, everybody.
0: Cheers. (laughs)